We are sending an armada. Very powerful. He, quote, realized it's not so easy. I mean... You never know, do you? You never know. Is that... I, I, I... We have submarines. Very powerful. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about President Donald Trump and his many adventures. I'm Jamel Bowie, Slate's chief political correspondent and your host for today's show. Tensions with North Korea are hot, or at least they're getting hotter. On Wednesday, the United States held military exercises with South Korea and threatened tough new sanctions. Both were in response to North Korea's successful tests of a ballistic missile capable of reaching Alaska and Hawaii, a gift package to the United States, in the words of North Korea's leader, Kim Jong-un. America's ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, threatened retaliatory sanctions against countries that do trade with North Korea and raised the possibility of using America's considerable military forces. President Trump himself has moved between belligerents, frankly acknowledging the chance of conflict and ordering warships into nearby waters, and a kind of detente, emphasizing efforts with China to rein in Kim's regime. There are no clear answers. An attack, even a limited one, could spiral into a peninsula-wide conflict, claiming countless lives. Continued stalemate, on the other hand, may allow North Korea to build nuclear-tipped missiles with the reach to hit the mainland United States. Even under the steadiest and most prudent of administrations, North Korea is an impossible challenge. Trump has shown himself neither steady nor especially prudent. But as the conflict with Kim heats up, he will have to show a steady hand, lest his tension spiral into something catastrophic. We will tackle this question of North Korea and what to do with our guest Daniel Dresner. But first, we have a few tweets. Numerous states are refusing to give information to the very distinguished voter fraud panel. What are they trying to hide? I am extremely pleased to see that CNN has finally been exposed as fake news and garbage journalism. It's about time. Spoke yesterday with the king of Saudi Arabia about peace in the Middle East. Interesting things are happening. At some point, the fake news will be forced to discuss our great job numbers, strong economy, success with ISIS, the border, and so much else. Trade between China and North Korea grew almost 40% in the first quarter. So much for China working with us. But we had to give it a try. To talk about the challenge of North Korea, we have Daniel Dresner, a professor of international politics at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. And he's also a contributor for The Washington Post. Hey, Dan, welcome back to Trumpcast. Happy to be here. All right. So I think in our intro, I walked listeners a little bit through what is going on with North Korea at this moment. But I was hoping you could provide a little broader context, because as I recall, 
President Trump has been in sort of, I don't want to call it dialogue, but communication, slightly hotter tensions with Kim Jong-un and the North Korean regime pretty much since he entered office. And it, it does seem like now things have kind of flared up in a way that they hadn't uh, in the past. But if you could provide just a little context to listeners uh, for what, what exactly is happening with Trump and North Korea and the missile program. and Sure. Since the inauguration, of course, North Korea has been test-firing various things uh, at a fairly steady clip. And what has been interesting has been the, the varied responses from the Trump White House and from the Trump administration. In some ways, there have been times where they've issued statements that have been so cryptic that it's been impossible to divine what they were trying to say. Uh, things along the lines of, we're not going to comment any further, or there's no need to comment, uh, something like that. And then, of course, there's the... Um, there's the various tweets that, that Trump has offered. But in a sort of macro sense, what it seemed clear was that what Trump wanted to do was to have China put pressure on North Korea. And this is, to be fair, an old argument that has, has been going on in terms of the United States. The notion that is that China exercises much greater leverage over North Korea because they are the principal trading partner of North Korea and because they're actual formal allies. And therefore, if the United States could somehow get China to exercise its own political and economic leverage over North Korea, that would potentially diffuse the situation. And interestingly, Trump, despite saying repeatedly, you know, sort of uttering anti-Chinese rhetoric during the campaign and even during the transition, indicated that he was very comfortable uh, with China potentially putting pressure on North Korea. As we now know, in fact, Chinese trade with North Korea increased, I think, something like 40% in the first quarter of 2017. And so we're now seeing Trump via his tweets going from China is making a good faith effort to pressuring North Korea to, well, North Korea keeps doing this, but China clearly tried, so what are you going to do about it, to now, well, China clearly didn't try, so we're going to have to take action on our own. And this is something they've constantly threatened to do, and you heard this yesterday as well uh, with U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, saying, unless the Security Council acts, the United States will act alone. But at this point, we come to the, the fundamental problem that Trump is about to recognize and that every previous administration has recognized since the end of the Cold War, which is there is no good option with North Korea. It is a set of lousy options. Yeah, I was just about to ask you that. I mean, from I, I'm sort of very much a layperson here, but even my understanding is that every conceivable option with regards to North Korea basically ends in disaster. Right. The, the fundamental thing to realize in terms of North Korea is that any sort of military escalation on North Korea would inevitably result in the destruction of Seoul, as we know it. Um, even if you had a perfect decapitation strike of uh, Kim Jong-un and the top leadership, it would never be quick enough to stop North Korea's artillery from then responding by shelling Seoul. So you're talking about deaths in the millions and destruction in the hundreds of billions, not to mention the question of how China would respond to all of this, of course. And that's the, the sort of, you know, aggressive option. To be fair to, you know, hawks on this issue, they are correct to point out that it's not like prior, you know, the negotiations in the past have a stellar track record either. As I said, this is literally a situation where there is no great option. And the question is, how do you manage the best of all of these bad possible options? Well, um, you know, how do you manage them? What? <laughs> <laughs> I drink, Jamel. I drink a lot. Um, so the fundamental issue that I think the United States needs to realize is that there's been a mis or misperception that the United States and China are on the same page when it comes to North Korea. 
And at a superficial level, that is true. China does not want North Korea to have nuclear weapons either, to be fair. They've been very clear about this. They are, and I've talked to enough Chinese foreign policy people to know that they are genuinely exasperated by what is going on in Pyongyang. That said, that's where the preference ordering shifts. The United States at some point would clearly like the North Korean regime as we know it to collapse. Um, and that is exactly not what the Chinese leadership wants. Right. The very sort of famous phrase that the, the China uses on this is lips and teeth with respect to China's relationship to North Korea. They want a North Korean buffer state because they're fearful of what would happen if a South Korea or a democratic you know, liberal democratic Korea were actually unified. It would represent a more potent threat potentially to China. And they're also, in the short term, far more worried about refugee flows if there was an actual collapse of the North Korean state. And so in the end, what the Trump administration wants to do, which is to clearly have some kind of regime change in North Korea, I seriously doubt China would sign on to. And if China's not going to sign on to it, then it's not going to happen, absent the use of military force. And if you then use military force, China is justifiably going to be very, very worried about what the implications of this are down the road, and they could potentially intervene on the North Koreans' behalf. Again, it's worth remembering North Korea is still formally China's only you know, treaty ally. That's not a great situation. You know, If I was doing this, I think what I would probably do would be, to be fair, something close to what the administration is actually doing, which is to say... You put theater missile defense, you know, defenses in South Korea, what's called THAAD. China does not like this at all because for all the, the justifiable reasons that you would do this because of North Korea's um, ballistic missile threat, China sees it as a threat against themselves as well. But China needs to live with the fact that if they really do want a North Korean regime in power, they're going to have to live with South Korea then pursuing alternative options. In other words, this needs to be made somewhat uncomfortable for China as well as North Korea. Now, Nikki Haley's suggestion yesterday, I think that, that China's trade was somehow going to suffer with the United States if North Korea wasn't dealt with, is to be blunt, either laughable or catastrophic, depending upon how serious she is. I actually have no idea. The most disturbing aspect of this from the U.S. side is not so much what, I mean, North, what North Korea is doing is problematic. It's that Russia and China responded with a joint communique suggesting that essentially the U.S. and uh, if the U.S. and South Korea were to halt military exercises and North Korea were to halt further testing, maybe that would be a first step forward. The reason that's problematic from the U.S. perspective is it indicates China is closer to Russia on this situation than it is the United States. Um, and that's a somewhat disturbing trend for them. One thing I, I wonder, to step back for a little bit, it's you know, recently or in the past uh, few years, the United States with its allies uh, and the broader international community has been able to kind of rein in Iran's nuclear program. Sanctions, inspections, sort of carrots and sticks all around have, have been successful so yeah. far in reining in Iran's nuclear program. North Korea doesn't – that strategy isn't really available to us for North Korea. Um, it's, an isol it's isolated. It seems to be very committed to building um, an intercontinental ballistic missile that can reach the United States. And as far as I can tell, once a country has committed itself to the path of building a nuclear weapon, because the know-how isn't really rare or anything, it's mainly – it's sort of in a lot of ways just like a, a, a ba very basic technical challenge of making sure everything's reliable. Once a country is committed to that path, it seems very difficult to derail them from that path. So do, do you think that – we're sort of looking at a world where, you know, barring, I mean, really barring armed conflict, North Korea has 
the kinds of nuclear weapons it's looking for sometime in the near to medium term? Uh, I think the answer is yes. Um, you're, you're correct to distinguish between North Korea and Iran on this. The reason that that pressure worked on Iran in the end, I think, was twofold. The first is is that, to the Obama administration's credit, there was genuine multilateral pressure on Iran, and it was done through the the P5 plus one. And I think you know one of the hidden successes there was the fact that during the, the entire range of negotiations with Iran, you never heard backbiting from any of the other participants in the P5 plus one. It was sort of the dog that didn't bark. The second thing, though, and the, re- and the reason this was distinctive is that Iran genuinely wanted to engage with the global economy. The president of Iran, Rouhani, you know, thought that one of the ways in which he could jumpstart Iranian growth was, in fact, to eliminate the sanctions. Iran obviously has things they can export that the global economy would demand. Um, so because the Iranian regime genuinely did want to participate in the global economy, they were willing to potentially make that trade-off. At least in the short term, we'll see what happens in the long term, obviously. On the other hand, with North Korea, it's it's pretty clear that North Korea for the last 25 years has made their preferences clear. Obviously, they would pr- probably be happy to uh, enrich themselves further by engaging the global economy. But if the choice is between that and regime survival, they will take regime survival, even to the point of starving their own population. So as a result, the The same kind of pressure in terms of sanctions will not work as well on North Korea as it will on Iran. The one way in which you could see a way out of this, and this is a little more radical, and I'm not sure, I'm pretty dubious that the Trump administration would go along with it, is to essentially de facto recognize that North Korea will have a few nukes, because that makes them feel more secure in terms of their regime survival, but they would then dismantle the rest of their nuclear program, as well as their missile program, which you know would potentially wind up in a win-win situation where North Korea clearly is going to continue to exist um, as an independent state. That gives China its buffer zone. At the same time, they're not going to proliferate. They're not going to spread their missile technology. That alleviates U.S. and Japanese fears. And weirdly, even South Korea might be okay with this because South Koreans are actually genuinely terrified about what the cost would be of reunification. They recognize that if North Korea were to collapse and if there were actually was going to be unification, it would cost far more than what Germany underwent um, after the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 and 90. So that would actually potentially be a stable status quo, assuming the North Koreans would go along with this. From the North Koreans' perspective, however, it's not obvious why they would go along with it, since they seem to be doing reasonably well in terms of the status quo. So in the end, they would have to be persuaded that there could be some sort of accommodation made in which North Korea could potentially have greater ties with the global economy in return for extremely strict non-proliferation protocols. I think one of the questions this gets to that I don't have much of an answer to, but what is I think the question is, what, is, what are ultimately the motivations of North Korea and specifically kind of Kim Jong-un and his clique. I'm trying to think of a better word than that, but clique is what I'm going to use. Clique um, is a good word in this case, yes. Um, is it just survival or uh, from what I understand of sort of like the, the founding mythology of the Kim monarchy, because that's really what it is more than anything else, they perceive themselves as the the only real legitimate rulers of a unified Korea. So is is that belief actually driving decision-making within the clique or just with Kim Jong-un? And if it is, is there really any kind of, any kind of path towards a, uh, a stable 
status quo? This gets into what is the mindset of Kim Jong-un and what is the sort of domestic balance of power or distribution of power within North Korea. And these are questions that I do not have the answer to, and I'm not entirely sure that anyone outside of Pyongyang has the actual answer to. Um, There is no denying that in in, in the same way that, that... you know, if South Koreans could cautiously reunify uh, the Korean Peninsula, they would be happy. I mean, you can argue the same would certainly be true of the North. And so it is entirely possible that he has this illusion that he could do this. And indeed, if you're Kim Jong-un, you know, based on sort of what you've done and, and sort of success, you know, cause and effect relationships, you've been able to, you know, assume power in your late 20s, um, brutally murder various aspects of your father's uh, regime without any real consequence. There is a way in which you could see how he would think he is truly invincible. And this is the, the biggest risk without question of any sort of, you know, attempt to negotiate or accept a North Korean nuclear deterrent is the possibility that he thinks, wow, I really can get away with anything. Um, so why shouldn't I try to grab uh, the entire rest of the Korean Peninsula and, you know, finally reunify a country that has been unified for millennia up until 1950? So there is that possibility. I can't I can't deny that, and it's a disturbing one. On the other hand, I also do think that there is a a dangerous tendency in analysis on North Korea to sort of talk about how crazy the North Koreans are is a way of trying to explain that, you know, they can't be trusted and so on and so forth. North Korea has very radically different preferences, the regime does, than than almost anyone else in the world, but I would not describe them as irrational. Um, Given what they want, they've been ruthlessly rational, in fact. So I, I actually, they do want to survive. And risking war on the Korean Peninsula would pretty much everyone agrees end their existence as we know it. So I do think in the end, they probably would not go that route. So one last question, looking at the Trump administration's actions so far, what do you think is the path it's likely to take? Do you think the sort of saber rattling we saw earlier this year will continue? Do you think that Trump may maintain his rhetorical commitment to wanting to, quote, solve the problem, but sort of begin to move towards what's basically been the status quo position um, for the past few presidencies of of basically accommodation and attempts to move the ball forward a little bit? I think you will see two tracks on this. The first is, is that the actual policy will probably not deviate all that much from previous administrations in this, again, because what inevitably happens is each administration realizes that whatever deviation from the status quo you might think is a better option, as it turns out, isn't. And even though the status quo is not terribly nice, all the other possibilities are even worse. That said, I also don't have any doubt whatsoever that rhetorically, uh, you will see in tweets and speeches and so on and so forth, uh, Trump simultaneously acting more bellicose and also being less credible in terms of his threats. I mean, this has unfortunately been the tendency uh, throughout his administration, which is he's simultaneously become more predictable and less credible when it comes to foreign crises, which is he will bloviate and bluster and so on and so forth, and in the end, not do all that much, you know, mostly because he's often tweeting or making, you know, off-the-cuff statements without realizing what the implications are. Um, at which point his national security team then informs him of his options. He was able to actually do something, for example, on Syria, mostly because he was confronting a radically weaker actor. In the case of North Korea, it, it's not quite that same. We did not say North Korea is the same power as the United States, but North Korea on the peninsula uh, has formidable policy options that, let's say, the Syrian regime did not. I have been speaking to Daniel Dresner. 
a professor at the Fletcher School at Tufts University and a contributor to the Washington Post. Thank you so much, Dan, for uh, your insight here. Thanks a lot, Jamal. And that's it for today's show. Just one more thing before we take off. Are you listening to Trump Care Tracker? It's Slate's latest podcast hosted by Jordan Weissman and Jim Newell, two of my colleagues at Slate. Check out Trump Care Tracker to, well, keep track of things happening with healthcare. You can find Trump Care Tracker on Apple Podcasts or wherever you go to listen to this show. Also, as always, be sure to follow Trumpcast on Twitter. We're at RealTrumpCast. That's at RealTrumpCast. Today's show is produced by Jason DeLeon. And thanks to Dan Bloom for the engineering help. I'm Jamel Bowie, and thank you for listening to Trumpcast. I'm Donald Trump, and I approve this message.